was recently published out of Singapore mid last year, I think. And they were able to demonstrate that you could read people's brainwaves and turn them into images. So what they did was that they'd put you in an fMRI and they would show you an image and then look at your brainwave and they'd show you an image and look at your brainwave. And like with enough of that data, they would be able to map what picture you were looking at to what your brainwaves look like. And then they would try to do the reverse process and essentially say, given these brainwaves, what are you, what image are you thinking about? Or like, what image are you looking at right now? That's, that's nuts. That's actually getting into black mirror territory of like, you know, replaying your memories and <laughs> I don't want that to happen. I don't want to replay my memories. <laughs> Some things I want to forget. Speaking of Apple, I've got one of their latest patents on using optical sensors to detect voice. So there is a use case of being able to send a laser and then like depending on how that essentially interacts with your sound waves because obviously sound waves make the the air go back and forth because that's what sound waves are the interactions with that and the light that it receives back or bouncing off that air or or the person's skin or mouth or teeth or whatever it can make a better approximation as to what they're saying and so microphones in the future could be a mix between audio sensors optical sensors and maybe even gyroscopic sensors and like other stuff. A friend of mine <laughs> um, got married recently and he <laughs> designed i don't really know what the right word is because i don't know how one actually does this i need to talk to him about more like a probiotic so a bacteria that breaks down the chemical in your body that alcohol gets metabolized into so that's what this is like one of the things that this bacteria loves to feed on and so the idea is you take this probiotic and you start drinking about I think, something like 30 minutes later and this probiotic has had a little bit of time to distribute through your body and it helps metabolize the things that your body metabolizes alcohol into and it dramatically reduces your hangover. And I've only used it twice, but I can say both times I drank heavily and also badly in terms of, you know, mixed alcohols, low quality alcohols. And both times I slept really well and, and didn't end up with a hangover the next day, which in my later years, AJ, is a miracle. That's that's pretty cool. Did you did you notice anything like why you were drunk? Like did it did it take you more alcohol to get drunk or I find like drunkenness is really environmental, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I have one drink and I'm good to go because like contextually everyone else is drunk. You just need the slight inhibition lowering and then you can hit the dance floor, tear it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Alright. Anything else top of mind? Well yes, but only the stuff that I prepped to actually talking about today, so but no, no. I did find a design agency in the UK that only does deep tech brands, which I thought was interesting. So it's thesourdough.co.uk. And I don't mean to plug them. I don't know how good they are. I just like saw a website of a nuclear fusion company. And I do want to do an episode on nuclear fusion at some point. And I was like, this is a really cool website. And at the bottom it said, designed by the sourdough. I'm like, okay. And I click into that. And then I just see that they only do design come like for for deep tech companies. So maybe if you need, I don't need a new website. I need a website. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
thought this was so interesting. Like, if I did a design agency, I think I'd do this because you can talk to the coolest companies, figure out how to tell their story in a really interesting way, and then present it. Did you? Is this where you got this week's ideas from? Just looking at their portfolio companies? No, I I will though. I will go through their portfolio companies because that was one of the strategies. I spent a couple of hours researching, went into a weird rabbit hole on solar panels, and then like. I just went into weird, weird spaces and I just started finding really interesting lists of deep tech companies out there. So I don't think we'll run out of stuff to talk about in 2024, if I'm being honest. There's just so much stuff out there, which is exciting. Is it just me or are you slightly bored of AI companies? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am, but I did find one that might excite you. We should limit ourselves. Like what one AI company... <laughs> And it's only because of the use case. It's only because of the use case. The rest of the stuff, like, yeah, I, I just haven't found. It's all kind of the same stuff. And then maybe, like, it's just, there's just too much stuff coming out that you're just like, all right, I'm just filtering now. What is it, that thing we talked about, banner blindness? Yeah. We saw that in crypto as well, right? Everything just became, like, crypto for blah. 99% of things weren't original. It's just the word crypto for in front of something that was a medium idea at best. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we're still kind of seeing that, right? Actually, I saw one that was kind of interesting. They're called CryptoSat. So I actually met these guys a couple of times and saw them a few times. And basically, if if you're at all familiar with the crypto space, one of the key challenges is like, how do you make sure nodes are operating securely and how you get around nodes that aren't operating securely? That's kind of the whole stick. And their idea was like, you take these hardware validated nodes and you just throw them up into outer space where they, where they, where they can't be tampered with. So like you get some basic, at least when I spoke with them, you get some basic blockchain functionality and you deploy it into outer space and then you can sort of shut it off from the rest of the world. And it's like, it's the ultimate secure hardware, right? Because you can't, you can't reach it. (laughs) And so if it has no software that enables you to remotely control it intentionally and it's sort of like autonomous, then yeah, it's the ultimate trusted hardware. I think they've since pivoted and they do a lot of other stuff now, which I guess makes sense as a company you're trying to make money and survive. But I thought it was a really cool, like a different approach to secure hardware, which was don't try to make the hardware uncrackable. Just put it in outer space when no one can get to it. <laughs> so I think they launched it. I think they launched Crypto 3, which is like their third satellite into space recently, very recently. Wait, why does this say ISS and then Crypto 2? Is the first one in, in the ISS? I just saw the news that they launched Crypto 3. Okay. Interesting. You can, you can see a live feed of where the satellites are. It's fascinating. That's a cool one. Was that part of your list? Or you, you, just... you, asked me, you asked me about crypto. So I do cool things, AJ. <laughs> I, th- I think anything in space is just cool. So like, yeah, crypto plus space, awesome. Quantum plus space equals awesome. Very simple equation, I think. Okay. Do you want to kick off today? Like, should we have a different scoring mechanism this time? We've used the gymnastics thing. I don't even remember. It was just it was just Tinder, right? We can, we can try something. Yeah, Tinder. We did Tinder. We can just stick to Tinder. Yeah. I think that's fine. All right, I'll kick off with a... So I have four. Two are big companies, two are startups. Let's let's start with one of the big companies. So, do you know Snap? Snapchat? Huge user, AJ. I'm snapping right now and loving it. You could be serious. I think I used it... I, I used it tons when it first came out and then... Because, you know, I was the demographic. And then, alas, I no longer... Because my brother is five years younger than me. And you're between... Uh, you're like a year younger than me. Okay, so you're still not in that generation. But I'm surprised that he's only five years younger than me and he's like obsessed with Snapchat. Like that's the only thing he uses. 
and his generation is using it. Maybe it's maybe it's mid to early 20s. I don't know what it is. But anyway, Snapchat's actually growing. So that's not actually what I'm meant to be talking about. But I did do a deep dive on Snapchat last year. And I realized that their user base is continuously growing. And they're actually doing pretty well. So it is an interesting company to just look at. They've also acquired so many different things. But what I wanted to talk about is that they launched a patent, patent around reading books. So basically, you would have a QR code in your book. You would scan it, and as you're reading it, it's like an AR thing. So basically, you will have your pages come to life. So you can have interactive objects, interactive experiences, and just really get lost into a book. So let's read through this. So the user wears the wearable electronic device such as AR glasses that identify the printed codes in the text and seamlessly provide virtual objects within a mixed reality environment for the reader to interact with while reading. It brings the pages to life. One example is that in a science textbook teaching about gases, it allows users to interact with supersized gas molecules to understand the relationship between volume and pressure. So someone actually designs this AR experience and then it, it, it puts it into a QR code on, on the page. It's not like generated on the fly. Because I feel like with everything that's happened recently, AI plus, you know, Apple Vision Pro, you could just be looking at a book with Apple Vision Pro, or like reading a book and just, it could automatically figure out what's going on and pull it out and like, make a 3D rendering of it for you. That's not so far. That's a good point. I think you could do that. I think you could do that. Um, by the way, when I look at this image, I don't even know what's going on. It's such an insane diagram. <laughs> don't know why padded diagrams always... Well, that's how they usually are. The padded drawings always like really... They have to be black and white, I'm pretty sure. Just like a very simple drawing. They're not meant to be super... It's so weird though. It's got like annotation. He could not believe his eyes. It was a dragon just like in his favorite TV program. What the fuck? Yeah, they're commenting on the kid, I'm guessing. Like, I don't even know which, what's the book. Maybe it's not a book. Maybe it's in an aquarium. Yeah, it's, it's just very confusing. Oh, actually, no, I think this is just the page of the book and the kid is in the book. Okay, that makes a little more sense. And there's a QR code. Great. I thought this was a diagram of the kid somehow experiencing this... <laughs> process. I love how that pattern includes the page number of the book in the bottom left-hand corner. Like, that's... <laughs> so, one thing I think that's interesting, and this is slightly off-topic, but it's just, like, it's relevant in some sense. There's a there's a game called Tetris Effect Connected, which is just, like, a really intense Tetris game, right? It's on PS5, PS4. I've been kind of addicted to it recently, just been playing Tetris over and over again. My new goal is to become a Tetris world champion. But I was watching the Tetris World Champion and there was this weird thing where he started performing better when he had AR headset on versus like just looking at the screen. And the narrator was sort of like, I think one of the reasons why this is the case is because of the full immersion you get with VR. Like it just cuts out every single distraction and you just see this Tetris board and everything else is black. So I think there is something around this like reading books thing where if you can make books a little bit more engaging, where you're like fully immersed in this book, Potentially, people could read for longer and focus on things. So that's what I wanted to bring up with this whole AR book thing. I can see the need for that. Like, I could definitely see the need for getting people to read for longer. I mean, you hear a lot of anecdotes recently, especially in, like, higher education, that people are just so distractible these days. Like, they, they cannot read for longer than a couple of pages at most at, at the university level. You know, professors be talking about this compared to you know, 10 years ago when the same professors teaching the same courses would be dishing out 30 plus pages of reading and people would be fine with it. But I don't think that distracting the person from the act of reading by showing them stuff in 3D is the solution to that. 
I think the solution is the opposite. It's like, don't use any of this technology. Maybe, maybe the AR part where you can just black everything out except the words that they're reading and force them as a human to generate these ideas on their own, like without that assistance, like go through that process and, and connect those neurons. I think this is going to be the equivalent of 3D glasses in the cinema. Like it was cool when it came out and I was like, whoa, this is amazing. And then, you know, I haven't seen 3D glasses for a while in cinema. Yeah, true. <laughs> anyway, that's what I got for you. I find it, I find it a, a slightly controversial take that you think Snap is doing well as a company. Snap is doing well from a user growth perspective. I don't know if they're doing well as a company. I'm just talking about user growth and their user growth is typically within the younger population and they're doing really well in emerging markets. So that's why I thought it was fascinating. So I'm not making any comments on the platform or financial situation or anything like that. All I'm saying is they're buying a lot of companies and they're having user growth, which makes it at least interesting to look at, right? Don't, don't judge the platform just because you don't use it. All right. <laughs> no, I'm, 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 I'm judging, I'm judging the financials of the, of the platform. They like, they're not in great shape, but okay, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure about that. I just mean user growth perspective and they bought a bunch of stuff. So I don't know what they're doing, but they, there's something there. Like if your users, users are growing and you're buying interesting AI companies, like surely there's something you can do with it. I find it really interesting seeing where these like tech companies expand into. Like it's not an obvious play necessarily for Snap to go into augmented reality. Like it, it went down that path pretty early on. And it's just, that's, that's just a curious one. Right? Like they, they went from just being pictures to being pictures plus messages. And then when AI came out, they kind of like did this snap AI thing that you could just talk to it. But going into AR is not like, it's not like super synergistic or it's not obviously super synergistic. So it's, it's an interesting play nonetheless. So I think Evan, Evan Spiegel, right? That's the founder. He, he did this whole thing around like, the camera is the, is the future of humanity, like just the camera tech in general. And so it's brought in the horizon and just like, not just focused on Snapchat and impermanence fit pictures and stuff like that, which he, I think that narrative only came about afterwards. I, I think they bought a VR headset company. So they bought a, they bought a AR glasses company. Do you think, do you think Google glass is going to come back? Not literally Google glass, but that same overall structure, just like, glasses with like a little screen instead of the full in vision pro potentially i mean like zuckerberg's already made a video about his yeah like he did a voice what do you think about that no it's just like a 200 second video that his buddy like recorded of him on the couch yeah i didn't actually watch it i just saw it like on my feet and then like didn't get it i've like saved it for later he basically just like broke down all the things where apple vision pro is said to be better and then explained why the quest is actually better, basically. Oh, okay. It's funny. My takeaway, having not watched the video, was assuming that that wasn't Zuckerberg. That was a like a rendered version of him wearing the quest. It kind of was because it was recorded on his buddy's like quest. So the guy was like watching Zuckerberg through the, but it was like in person. So it was the pass through being recorded. Right. Okay. When I saw the pass through comment, I thought it was the. You know how in Apple Vision Pro you can have the goggles on and FaceTime someone and you see their face. I thought that's what he was doing. So he was wearing the thing and then, yeah, anyway. Okay, not as cool as I thought. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely going to be a war on spatial computing. I mean, that's what they're calling it now. I have seen heaps of reviews on the Apple Vision Pro. The lock-on system is really cool. Like, I'm surprised how well they can do lock-on. 
like a screen can just like stay put and you can run around and stuff like that and it'll stay exactly where it's meant to be. That must have been a lot of engineering. I'd be I'd like So I, I would generally swipe right on virtual reality and augmented reality or like mixed reality, I think is what they're calling it now. But I think I'm gonna swipe left on the on the Snapchat Peyton. That's okay. I won't take it personally. I'll just go cry myself to sleep tonight. <laughs> no, I think the snap reading glasses you know, I started with the with the low firepower. I've got the, the bigger firepower for a bit later, so it's okay. Yeah, this is sort of my, uh, you know, the straw man tactic where you put, like, the, the straw man idea and then burn it down and you have the good idea behind it. Have you heard of that? I, I only have good I only have good ideas, so I, I couldn't possibly use that idea. Yeah, fair, fair. Yeah, I'm, this, this is why I get $5 an hour and you get 5000 right? Like, I don't understand this joke. You you get paid from your startup, don't you? I, I don't. <laughs> it's the opposite. <laughs> okay so my, mine's kind of like a it's definitely a big company wide but people might have seen in the news recently that uh, Neuralink got their first clinical patient so like first human to get this brain chip implanted in them which I think is pretty cool so I wanted to talk about that a little bit and, and sort of explain exactly what actually is going on here so essentially that a few months ago they put out a call for clinical trial volunteers so you don't get paid for this trial um, but you have to be there's a couple of conditions. You have to be fully quadriplegic. You have to be completely unable to move, basically. You have to have a carer. You have to be over 22, a couple of these sort of like things. Um, and essentially what they do is they use this robot called the R1, and they surgically implant a little chip, sort of like a, a hefty coin, fits on the top of your brain around here, I think. And it has 120... Sorry, 1,024 electrodes across 64 threads that sort of get like embedded into your, that part of your brain. So they sort of lay it out of sort of the surface of this brain with a little, little bit of depth. So most of the neural, sorry, most of the brain chips in general are very surface level, but we have not figured out how to insert them deeply into the brain safely and repeatedly for, for, and, and, and do anything with that that makes it worth the risk. So it's still planted on the surface. And, and right here is your motor cortex. So this is, I think it's called the prime motor cortex, which is the part of your brain that's generally responsible for thinking about movement. Not the part that is actually responsible for doing the movement, but the part that's responsible for like generating that intent. And then they've essentially, they, they map these brain signals that are happening in this part of your brain. And they use that to allow you to control phones and computers, which is pretty sick. So it's not your traditional sort of like epileptic treatment attempts, but it's very much focused on people with like ALS or spinal injuries, traumatic brain injuries, et cetera, that have left them unable to move. Yeah, and the idea is that it interprets that neural activity. And then by being able to like operate other devices, you kind of minimize or you, you it's, it's not a therapy, obviously, for the injury, but it's a device that allows you to minimize the impact of that injury on your actual day to day life. You can, you know, go full Stephen Hawking, but without having to do everything through like tiny little eye movements, you can do it through just thinking about stuff you can play video games and you can move things around basically i mean once you can communicate with the computer you can do quite a lot from there there was a cool video actually of a i think it was a chimpanzee i don't know some something from the ape genus was doing a joystick game and then like sort of controlling these blocks and then they unplugged the joystick and then just like because they mapped the brain patterns of like what an up movement is what a down movement is the ape is just moving this like block with its mind. And I was like, that's, that's crazy. But it kept doing the joystick just to have the pattern, but it wasn't plugged in. And they like made a big show of it. I've like, always been surprised at how little 
brainwave data you need to get these kinds of interfaces working. I mean, they're super primitive still, but like you would yeah. kind of would have expected the brain to be a lot more complicated in terms of the signal and turning that into something. So I went deeper on that concept as well. And there's a whole series of like researchers and startups working in, in this space. One of the really cool things is being able to it actually happens, it was recently published out of Singapore mid last year, I think. And they were able to demonstrate that you could read people's brainwaves and turn them into images. So what they did was that they'd put you in an fMRI and they would show you an image and then look at your brainwave and they'd show you an image and look at your brainwave. And like with enough of that data, they would be able to map what picture you were looking at to what your brainwaves look like. And then they would try to do the reverse process and essentially say, given these brainwaves, what are you, what image are you thinking about? Or like what image are you looking at right now? And the results are creepily like accurate. So let me see if I can get this link. That's, that's nuts. That's actually getting into black mirror territory of like, you know, replaying your memories and <laughs> I don't want that to happen. I don't want to replay my memories. <laughs> Some things I want to forget. Let me show you this. So yeah, there's all these like privacy concerns that people are now raging about for obvious reasons. Let me see if I can find the actual picture. Here it is. So this image on the left is what they were looking at. And then the image in red was what they were able to render. Like this is very reminiscent of like a, the generative AI pictures that we saw, you know, like 10 years ago coming out of DeepMind for the first time. And you can see how quickly this is going to converge on something with enough data. Oh my God. Yeah. We need to interview someone in this space. This is fascinating. Great wave space. Anyway, that was my, that was my first idea. My first pitch. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's definitely a swipe. Right. Yes. Swipe. It's a yes. I do take it personally. Yeah. That's so cool. Super scary. Yeah. Imagine I like the, the IOT security concerns on devices that can like read your mind. <laughs> I think also just getting implants into your brain or implants in general, like, you know, become this hackable sort of entity. That's a little bit scary as well. Like just to think about, you know, you're now online, which means you're susceptible to every kind of attack that can come through. So yeah, zero day attack on your brain. That'll be fine. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to write mode. Read mode is at least least good write mode. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, write mode has some really interesting implications around like restoring movement to people, right? Like for certain people, you can restore sight. Deserted people. Can, can you restore, have they been able to restore sight with, with this? I wasn't aware of that. I, I, I knew that they'd done like epileptic. I don't know if they've done that, but I think that was stated as one of the. I, I know, I know they use it for epilepsy and I think there are some considerations to use it for Parkinson's to try and help essentially soothe the neuronal activity that goes haywire in, in those diseases. I mean, we're kind of already doing this. If you think about a cochlear implant as a very like primitive version of this, it's essentially taking sound waves and then directly electrically stimulating your cochlea which goes to your brain so like we are in some sense writing to the brain in a very elementary way it's kind of like the dos system right now but you know there are production systems out there which is evolving that now going directly to the brain essentially ready play one is going to happen for sure like you've got you've got the ai you've got the the, the mixed reality and soon you're gonna have direct brain rights like we're gonna be in the matrix in like three years oh my god yeah Oh yeah, I'm keen, bro. We should do our we should do our next episode like in <laughs> AVP. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can try. Yeah, I just need to go find a $7,000 Appalachian Pro down the street. Like, it's such a rip. What is wrong with the Australian dollar? Yeah, 6.99. Because I genuinely thought of that. I was like, oh, maybe I should go buy one. It'll be fine. And I looked at the price and I was like, yeah, no. You can buy a second car. Yeah, but the car can only take you a few places. The APP can take you anywhere, AJ. That's true. All right. Speaking of Apple, we've got one of their latest patents on using optical sensors to detect voice. So there is a use case of being able to send a laser and then like depending on how that essentially interacts with your sound waves, because obviously sound waves make the the air go back and forth because that's what sound waves are. The interactions with that and the light that it receives back or bouncing off that air or, or the person's skin or mouth or teeth or whatever, it can make a better approximation as to what they're saying. And so microphones in the future could be a mix between audio sensors, optical sensors, and maybe even gyroscopic sensors and like other stuff. That is insane. I wouldn't think that we had, I mean, okay, we obviously have sensors enough that are the sensors that are sensitive enough to detect perturbations in light caused by sound, but not for commercial, like grade hardware. I didn't think that's insane. Yeah, I mean, they just put the pattern in, so I don't think it's it's getting live yet. But look at this amazing diagram explaining how this is working. But yeah, light sensors. Yeah, why do they have to make the drawings so complicated? Surely there's some requirement to draw a pattern in like this dumb way in order to be able to describe it in its essence. Yeah, I, I think so. I think it has to be really simple, black and white drawing, cannot be overly complex or like so overly colored or anything like that. So... Yeah, I think there's definitely some sort of restrictions around that. Otherwise, these big companies wouldn't be having drawings that look like this. I mean, Apple especially, that is very design-oriented. Yeah, so that's my second one. That's pretty cool. So is, is, is the idea that this would just act as an extra dimension of, of data input for trying to pick up what people are saying, or that you could actually, just with this alone, figure out what someone is saying? So I, I think it is to augment the audio microphones. However, it could also be used to, like, I guess there is a use case where it could just like generate the sound. Now that we have AI voice generation and things like that, it is using AI to process it and decipher what the person is saying. But I think the the more sort of data points you have, the better they can do voice isolation, get rid of wind, you know, other things that might be happening, which I think is actually a good thing. Having done meetings, you know, outside in a storm, like while it's raining, things like that, like it's just would be nice to have amazing noise cancellation. I wonder how a device like this would work. In that context, though, like you'd have to shine the beam on yourself. So I think it'd be reading your lips. I think the simplest use case is it's just reading your lips, right? So if you had a camera on your face, just detecting based on your lips and teeth movement, what are you saying? Your teeth aren't meant to move, AJ. They're meant to be solid in place. And have you ever spoken while keeping your teeth in place? My jaw moves. My teeth are uh, stationary. Your teeth are moving relative to <laughs> the air. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why you're biting me on this. Just... Anyway, the way the way that one speaks, if you're interested in how phonation works, is your tongue moves relative to your hard palate and your soft palate, and also your teeth and then your lips. So those are the ways that you make sounds, right? So you want to make a butt sound, you got to use your your mouth. Whereas if you want to, you know, use your 
hot palate in your, your teeth. So there's different things that you have to do to make sound happen. And I'm sure that if you use a camera and some AI, you could generate the, the sound that way, right? So I think this is just a more fancy way of doing it by having more optical sensors detecting. Yeah. I was going to say like ge- generating sound by just lip reading, essentially, or mouth reading, teeth reading is less interesting because it's kind of like, it doesn't feel deep. Like it's, it's just like, yeah, it's, it's like, I think AI has made so much progress and that kind of stuff falls into like trad tech now, you know, but laser beams to detect the perturbation of like molecules in the, in the air and therefore, and decode that into sound. That's pretty sick and would require some serious, serious work. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a swipe, right? It's not super light. It's definitely a swipe, right? Though I like, I think everyone has experienced low quality audio. They're probably experiencing it right now because I'm recording this on Apple AirPods, but maybe in a few years, the Apple AirPods will be even better than a mic. I, I guess my point was sort of like shooting, shooting myself in the foot here, but my point was more that like, this seems like a fairly over-engineered solution to the actual outcome. Whereas like, if we're getting really good with AI voice generation, where we can clone someone else's voice, and we know for a fact that people can lip read pretty well, that we could use an AI to lip read and just generate your voice, which seems like a much simpler solution than trying to figure out how the air molecules are moving outside your mouth, right? So that was sort of the, the end point, the end notes I was sort of making. When you were up to exactly where I, I arrived, which is I think noise cancellation stops being noise cancellation and starts just being voice generation. So you have an AI that's not what someone's saying, figure out approximately what mm-hmm. it is that they're saying, word, very precisely what they're saying as just text. And then you've pre-recorded a bunch of sounds of this person speaking in high quality and then you just re-render that on the other side. Yeah, exactly. Which uh, is kind of how telephones work in some way, right? Like you, you speak, your sound waves get turned into electricity, electricity is transmitted, turned back into sound waves, right? So why don't we just add another layer, turn into AI, and then like, you know, generate the voice altogether. I'll take this swipe, right? I've got one down and, you know, one good. So right. Shall I give you my next one? My next one's kind of geeky, and I'm not sure it'll make mm-hmm. sense to most people or why I'm excited about it. But I'm excited about it because I faced this problem. So there's this company called Simply Block, which um, recently raised just shy of three million US dollars for their company. Basically, modern computing platforms are highly distributed. They have a lot of different machines in a lot of different places. And this is because machines can only go so fast. So if you're renting hardware in the cloud, let's say, and you want to deal with a million active users, one machine can't really do that, depending on the kind of workload that each user consumes. And so you need a bunch of different machines. But they all need to agree on what the state is. So they all need to agree on what actually exists on the platform in terms of the data. You know, like what posts have been posted and what photos have been liked. So that everyone still sees, to the best of your abilities, the same information at the same time. Um, so, for example, you know, YouTube um, is obviously distributed across, I don't even know how many millions of servers they must have. But everyone, for the most part, can find the same videos, regardless of which you know, part of the world that they're in or which computer they happen to be accessing. So it's all about how do you get these distributed computers to access what is also ultimately distributed storage? Because especially when you're YouTube and you're dealing with something like a petabyte of data a day, that's not being stored on a single computer. That's also being stored all around the world, different machines. That's an insanely hard problem to solve. And for the most part, cloud provider solutions aren't very good when they leave you needing to solve these yourselves. And so the idea behind Simply Block is that it takes these cloud providers Specifically, I think they're tailored for AWS right now and turns the sort of like dumb storage blocks that you can just sort of acquire from AWS and adds all of this intelligent capability on top of it 
so that it can, you know, like automatically cache things, it can automatically back things up, it can automatically create new volumes when you need them and sort of make your distributed storage environment look like it's not distributed and look like it's just one unified massive machine, even though it's not actually practically. And that's just a really nice mental model. Like when you're a programmer and you're writing code, the last thing you want to be able to do, like one has to do is think about where your data is coming from and how it's reaching you. It's much nicer to have an abstraction where you just say, let's just pretend I've just got one massive fuck off hard drive and I'm just doing a, a simple operation on that hard drive. Okay, so if you were to simplify this into a simple problem statement and solution, is it we are currently hitting speed limits with the current load speeds when it comes to distributed content, distributed compute, and this will help us? It's, it's a simplicity play. And I think simplicity always comes with speed because if, if you make something simpler to use and you put all the work into that hard stuff behind the scenes, people aren't going to have to write it themselves and inevitably fuck up and they're not specialists at it and so they're going to end up having it slower less good solution than a bunch of experts in this space. So the, the idea is more that data is now stored across many, many places, and that's very hard to model mentally. And how do you make that go away <laughs> so that your average programmer doesn't have to think about this? Okay, so is it improving my speed to deployment? Like I don't need to, like less overhead? It would, in principle, improve your speed to deployment because you don't have to worry about implementing solutions for this kind of stuff, which you would otherwise have to. It means that like your latency is probably going to be lower. It also means that your cloud costs are going to be lower because often you're using more like very, very realistically what happens a lot of the time is that you end up using suboptimal storage solutions because it's just hard to even figure out which storage you should be using when. Because in a cloud, there are many, many layers of storage and they all cost different amounts. And being able to have a system that can intelligently shift data around between these different types of storage, keep them all in sync, Make sure your costs are being minimized, whereas the data that you're accessing a lot is still being accessed very quickly. And then also not allocating too much data. You know, so there's this challenge where you say, okay, I think I need 10 gigabytes to service my users, but the last thing I want is my system to go offline because I miscalculated. So I'm just going to get 100 gigabytes and then I'm, I know I'm, I'm in the clear. But now I'm paying for 10x the storage that I actually needed. And that's sort of like the really dumb way of doing it, but it's really fast. And so if you're a startup, you're just like, screw it. I'm just going to do that because it's, it's simple and it's quick. It's obviously suboptimal from a pricing perspective. So this is a simpler infrastructure solution, both for the developers and also theoretically better speed. Yeah, exactly. And in, th in theory, you could do this yourself, but like being someone from the distributed computing environment, I can tell you it's it's not an easy technical thing to, to pull off. So I like this, but also what I've realized is you have a scratch, like you have an itch that you haven't scratched yet because every single time you bring up this something similar or like something in the infrastructure space or the cloud space, and it just sounds like, you're going to do something. No one's built Mio yet, so that's still in the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think you, you definitely have to do it because you clearly your info diet is all of this. Not even. So in preparation for this podcast, I, I was looking at Crunchbase and looking at recent funding rounds. And this was like the first, it was like the most recent funding round on Crunchbase. And I, I clicked it and mm. I'm like, oh shit, this is dope. Okay, that's, that's fair. Yeah, I, I think this makes a lot of sense. But what, what do you think is the, the hard part about what they're doing? So I think, well, there's hard and there's risky, right? And I think those are different concerns. Mm -hmm. One of the risky parts of what they're doing is that they're hyper-tailored to AWS. So AWS doesn't have a history of randomly changing shit under the hood, but they could easily clone you and then you're screwed, right? I mean, what, what, I mean if you want to talk about a company that has a lot of distributed storage experts, 
and as an incentive to provide all of these same solutions. And as a culture of trying to make things cheap for the customer, you don't want to be over-indexed to a single cloud storage provider. And, and that, that can be really risky because some cloud providers offer things that other cloud providers don't. And so if you make your storage solution only available for AWS and you leverage really AWS specific features, that's fantastic. But what if your customer doesn't use AWS? What if they use Azure? What if they use Google Cloud? So you're taking a bet that AWS continues to win the cloud space. And I don't think that's a safe bet. You know, there's talks about Meta moving into cloud. There's, you know, Google has, and, and Azure have taken huge chunks of AWS's potential pie in the last you know, five years. And I think that trend continues with how aggressive Microsoft has managed to be in the AI space. But I think that the hard part is, I mean, the non-technical hard part is always the same. It's just, there's definitely product market fit here, but it's distribution strategy. How do you get this to people? How do you convince a startup that they should pay you X dollars a month per gigabyte? I guess you charge by the byte. And that that's actually going to be better for them because as someone who's deeply in the space or was deeply in the space, I can tell you how hard this problem is. I can tell you how much pain it will cause cause you down the line. You don't have to sell me. But if you are deeply technical in this space, it's easy to underestimate how hard this problem is to solve and how much money you can waste by not solving it properly. And so trying to educate users that aren't technical in that specific subgenre of, of computing, I think that's going to be one of their challenges. Yeah, I think often it comes down to like inertia and switching costs, right? Like a lot of customers start with AWS because they get a free plan, they get free credits for a while, they're pretty generous with it as well. And by the time you've built your infrastructure and like spent all this time on it, you build your company for three years, you're already so ingrained that it's really hard for you to even think about switching. And I think that's why the free credits are such a popular strategy for the cloud companies, right? Do all these startup stuff. What you'll notice if you pay attention is that the free credits don't come from the Iron Ireland um, organization. They come from whatever your local organization is. So let's say you're making a few hundred million dollars in the US from US centric companies. You start a US subco of your, your cloud provider. It dishes out, you know, however many credits, hundred million dollars worth of credits, and it has to purchase those credits from the actual company, which is based in Ireland. And so the US company makes nothing it purchases $100 million of credits and then gives them out for free and says, well, that's an operating cost. And then the company in Ireland makes all the money. So <laughs> it's it's got multiple benefits. Okay. Oh, that's cool. I didn't even think about that. That makes sense. Okay, so to move back to the block stuff. So I'm like looking at their page, which is simply block versus Amazon EBS. And then I realized I don't even understand what a block is. It's a the cloud equivalent of a hard drive. Or like a USB stick. Okay. Okay. The other thing I see is it's cost efficient. So it's as low as 0.0022 US dollars per gigabyte per month, which is five times lower than Amazon. Now, here's my question. How much of Amazon's like pricing is actually just like margins versus like the actual cost? Like, that's great. You can be cheaper than them. But are you just like undercutting their price for the sake of it? Like, or is it? And that was kind of my point about risks, right? Like the last thing you want to be trying to do is undercut Amazon on pricing. They're going to win that game. Yeah, just in general, undercutting pricing is not the best strategy for entering a market that's quite like monopolized by a couple of players. Like, Yeah, I think also the open source community will eventually catch up with this as well. And that's going to be a real challenge is that groups like the Kate's community, they do not underestimate don't understand how overcomplicated they make things, but also don't underestimate how many complicated problems they can solve. So do you have an answer for that? Like, According to their filings, their margins are anywhere between 30 and 50%, but I don't 
know what the breakdown of that is. It's going to be like the McDonald's problem, right? Where like you actually, the, you know, the hamburgers are a loss leader and you make all your money on fries and drinks. So maybe it's the case that, that storage mm. is a loss leader or maybe it's the case that computers are the loss leader and actually they make all their money on storage. I don't know what that breakdown looks like. Okay. I'm going to give this a... I'm going to swap last. I think it's interesting, but I'm not really sure exactly how they're going to compete or how they're going to win. And then from a deep tech perspective, like, interesting. Like, you know, we've, we've talked about the space for a while, but not seeing anything. Like, well, t- tell me about the engineering. Like, do you think it's, it's like, is there really intense engineering going on here? Like, what's, what's so special about what they're it's, doing? It's just, like, solving these distributed... I mean, you've been on the inside of what it's like to try and build a blockchain company, right? And one of the key challenges around building a blockchain company is how do you deal with distributed data problems? How do you actually make an application that's sharded across thousands of machines look like one unified state? And that is just an unsolved problem in terms of what the best way to do that is. And to do it in a way that's low latency, in a way that's reliable, in a way that everyone actually does eventually see the same state and that the gap between how quickly, you know, something gets into the state and how quickly everyone sort of agrees that that's what it looks like. All the same problems that you would be familiar with in the blockchain space are real and present in the centralized computing space. The difference is just like the type of algorithm that you use and you, you're trying to deal with, you know, milliseconds of, of block times instead of, you know, 30 second block times. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, I think I'm still going to stay with my rating, but I want you to know it's not it's not you, it's me. I I don't I don't I can't fully appreciate it, so that's why <laughs> I'm going to do it. I've got we've got two left, but I'm going to I'm going to stick to one. So my my third one is the AI thing I talked about. So it is prompt to 3D model. So prompting and and designing 3D models, which I think is a really interesting space. So the company called 3DFi.ai, which I can share the website. So basically what happens is, yeah, you just type in a prompt and it will generate like whatever you want. The website's sick. You probably can't see it for some reason. It's not loading the entire thing on the screen share. But if you go to the website, it's just a beautifully designed website, which, you know, I know you shouldn't get sold on the the look of the website as like the main thing, but it does really help with the value proposition. So yeah, you, you type in a prompt and it'll generate a 3D model. Here's some of the interesting things about like the tech side of things. So what happens is that it uses something called neural radiance field um, instead of a typical it's like CAD model. So just to talk you through how a CAD model would work, typically if you were to make something on a CAD, let's say you want to make a cylinder, you would draw a circle and then extrude it out and you would make a cylinder. That's how you make it in SolidWorks or any Autodesk or any kind of CAD software that I did in university. Now, the good thing about that is if you wanted to change the side's length or if you wanted to scale it up and down, it's not too difficult. However, the way that they generate this is that they use a bunch of 2D images to then splice into this like 3D representation. And it essentially creates a point cloud. So imagine like, you know, 300, 400, 5,000 points that sort of collectively make this 3D model. Difficulty of that is if you wanted to edit it or make some like engineering parameter changes, it can be quite difficult. So typically with engineering, it'd be a little bit more ideal if you had a parameter based model where you can actually tweak it a little bit rather than this like point cloud model. So I think that's currently what are the limitations of it. Interesting. I think like, let me show you what it looks like on the platform. One of the key criticisms I've heard of um, from to 3D is that 
natural language is a terrible medium through which to describe something that's 3D. So is it is it like what what's their use case here? Are we about to see it? Are you going to generate? Is this their? So uh, I mean, okay. these are the current use cases: they have table lamps, sofas, tables, like all that kind of stuff, and then swords and shields and axes. So I made I made a sword. Typed in I wanted a two sided sword. I try to make a fairly complex prompt with a circular handle in the middle, so the swords can rotate around it. Didn't know what to expect. It generated this. What was the prompt? What I just read. So I wanted a two sided sword with a circular handle in the middle, so the swords can rotate around it. What is that even? What What were you imagining? Because that looks. I don't know what the rotation thing means. <laughs> I don't know. I just thought maybe like, imagine like Darth Maul's like lightsaber, but then there's like a, a circular handle. Oh, that kind of rotate. Okay. <laughs> See what I mean? It's it's a terrible medium through which to describe what you want because the the level of detail that you have to go through. Yeah. So this is the discussion, right? So I called one of my friends who works in manufacturing and I was like, hey, like, what are your thoughts on 3D modeling using AI? And he was the one who was telling me, like, you know, right now it just uses point clouds and, like, that's not super useful for us because it'd be easier if it generated some sort of engineering model so we can tweak it, so we can change the side lens, so we can, like, make customizations. And I guess your point actually makes a lot of sense too, which is, like, just typing that out isn't enough information. Like, you need to, you know, maybe, maybe give inputs on what is the the wall that you're attaching it to or like what what surfaces does it need to come in contact with what kind of size does it need to be all this additional information that i think is really difficult right now but i do think it's a fascinating use case to get to the point where you can talk to something you know just yeah, well i think also just i mean um, content libraries are a thing right so back in my 3d modeling days you'd load in a, an object from a content library and you would then start making modifications so as your base and I, I certainly think that if you can get away from point clouds towards something like parameter based, then it's 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 a perfect way to get started with something, right? It's like you've got this vision in your head of a, of a Darth Maul sword that can rotate. So it's like, okay, just give me a sword. Right. It's a basic description, so you can tweak that a little bit, tweak your prompt until you kind of get bored of that, and you're like, okay, I pushed the prompting bit, prompting as far far as I can. Now I'm going to go in and start making modifications manually. And there are tons of algorithms for turning. I mean, I guess what. What surprises me about why if you can go from a point cloud to like a, a hull, like a series of triangles that are all joined together that you can then manipulate the vertices and, and the faces and it sort of parameterized in that way using like ISO surface renderings. So you can do this and I don't imagine it's going to be too long before you can go from a prompt to that kind of model that can then be easily edited. But I, yeah, I think it's not, it's a gimmick until you can get there. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that sentiment. I think that makes sense. I, I think I like the idea of it. I don't know if it's like, is there anything like tangible that's going to happen in the future? Like maybe every single person has like a 3D printer in their home, which they can just request stuff from. And there's like a Jarvis that's like there. And it's like, oh, you know, what? I need a coat hanger. And like, you know, you know what my closet looks like. Can you like make something for me? And it just sort of generates a model, prints it out for you. And you have this little thing. Is that the future? Maybe, maybe not. Is there any use case in like commercial production lines? I think maybe speed up the flow of like a, a CAD draftsman or a, a manufacturer. But I think there's still, you know, I still think there's a long way to go when it comes to like how we're going to incorporate it in the engineering procedures for physical products, in my opinion. I think, I mean, en- engineering is a lot, lot further away, but ideation, that's a fair point. Mm-hmm. Indie games, you know, you don't have to get too. Like you have to get up to the cloud because games don't work like that, but that's trivial to do. So, I mean, 
ideating on concepts and sitting in VR and getting crazy stuff generating in front of you from your voice and getting inspired from that, I think is, but what's the market for that? You know, how much are these AI companies raising? Yeah, we'll, we'll see. I, I didn't actually check if these guys raised any money. I just decided to start for this particular one. I decided to start with the concept and see if there's a company out there that did it. So I typed in prompt to 3d model and this came up. Does Cinder have like a safer later feature where you can like bookmark a profile and like decide later or do you, do you have to go stack top to bottom so i think um so i learned a little bit more about tinder from a friend of mine recently and he said that if you pay for the premium version you can rewind oh okay cool well in that case in that case i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna swipe left no only if you transfer me five bucks and i'll let you rewind <laughs> if you'd like <laughs> i'll do that oh yeah i'll, I'll pay five dollars for an option on this yeah. yeah nice i'm gonna swipe left and then i'll, I'll rewind to it in two years and see if i See if they've gone over some of these hurdles. Easiest $5 I've made in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know yet to pull off an hour-long podcast for it. Like, that's not a good hourly race. That's true. I'm going to do all this research. Speaking of which, we're going to be talking about the technocratic earth. What is that, Bong? Do you remember? Okay, so apparently the idea is that if you ask people to pay for something that's free by instead of paying, asking them to do something for you, and if you explicitly make that ask, apparently it works really well. And so we created the technocratic oath, which is that we do this podcast for free, obviously, as you can tell by its quality. And so how you're going to pay for this is that you're going to like it, you're going to subscribe, you're going to share it with people, and you're going to let people know about it so that we can grow this thing that we're doing for reasons unknown to both of us. Yeah, and actually, you guys didn't realize this, but we actually implanted the N1 Neuralink in your brain. And so you have no choice. It's going to happen. We're already writing to your brain right now, and you're going to be liking, subscribing, and sharing to your friends. So doesn't matter. You can fight against it, but you're going to do it this week. <laughs> what? I don't know. I thought I'd try something different this week. <laughs> I can't wait till I can just I could just do this podcast with you via Neuralink. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And last thing I want to say, if we get 100 likes, then we will do a deep dive on nuclear fusion. But we need 100 likes on this particular episode. So let's see how we go. Actually, I already want to do this episode. Let's say 50, because at least then I can sit there and like it 50 times if I really have to. But let's let's get to that like goal, and then we can we can see how we go with this this episode. And we can try and find a guest for Nuclear Fusion too, because I think it's a really fascinating topic. I actually did research for this episode to do it. Then I realized I could do a whole episode on it, so I decided not to bring it up as an idea. Okay, well, next episode, Nuclear Fusion, 50 likes. Let's make it happen. Awesome. All right, thanks, guys. See you later. <laughs>